Thanks, Doug, for, for that song. A couple weeks ago when we sang that song, I thought it would fit perfectly with the sermon that I'm going to preach on, and I thought it would be good for me personally, uh, since I'm not known to cry uh, in my family, and I thought that that would be the perfect song that I would need to soften my own heart uh, before I brought you all the word uh, this morning. <clears throat> However, this morning when I got here and I saw that I had picked that song, I thought, Boy, that was such a stupid idea of mine, because I don't need anything to soften my heart this morning. Uh, and the whole idea of preaching on the joy of mourning uh, has been a real struggle for me this week as I've been preparing. Uh, since a mammogram on Tuesday turned into a kind of a walk right across the hall for a biopsy, uh, which uh, then resulted the next day with finding out that uh, Susan has breast cancer. So, um, but it's been a full week because, as was indicated, I was also promoted to lieutenant colonel, so my parents are here to both celebrate and grieve with us. Uh, and then, to just kind of top it all off, I could feel myself mourning for this tragedy, and then I'm working in the text realizing that what Christ really calls me to do is mourn over the sin in my life. And I, I'm aware that I don't hardly do that like I mourn in the, about the tragedies or, or things that I'm anxious about or issues of health or, or uncertain futures. And so, uh, well, that's the sermon. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> so, but uh, anyway, it really is a joy to, to bring the word this morning. I have no idea how this sermon's going to come across, so uh, it, it may not be. So if you'd like to go to Grace Kids, this is, this is your time. But... Um, I did, when I got the initial invitation to preach here nine or ten months ago, I thought it would be easier for me if I just kind of preached through a series. And so I decided that one of my favorite sections in Scripture is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and I want to give credit to where credit is due. If you haven't ever read uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones's work on that, his studies on the Sermon on the Mount, that's where you'll see some of my outline uh, and some of the points that I make really flow from there. So... Uh, needless to say, his work has heavily influenced uh, the series. Well, let me uh, read the text, pray, and then preach. Matthew chapter 5, uh, I'm going to start in verse 1 and read until I stop. So this is the word of God. Seeing the, mount, or the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. and When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. 
For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please pray with and for me. Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But if my words should stray from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. Pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What strange words those are. What a strange saying to our ears. Happy is the one who is crying, for they shall be comforted. Fortunate are you when you weep, for you shall be comforted. Maybe with your church ears on. That makes sense. I was reading Calvin, Calvin and Hobbes, and um, he gets a grade back from his teacher, Mrs. Wormwood, and he gets an F, and Susie gets an A, much like in our own house. But uh, he says, maybe it's opposite day. Maybe it's opposite day. So perhaps with our church ears tuned on, we think maybe this makes sense. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus has this history and habit of turning things upside down, right? The first shall be last. The weak made strong. The blind see. The deaf hear. Okay, perhaps that's what this text means. Today's sadness becomes tomorrow's gladness. And we can accept the text without really trying to understand it. But how strange these words must sound to our culture, and to our society. I'm sure they sounded strange in Christ's day as well. Blessed, fortunate, happy, on the right road are the ones who weep and mourn. Ours is a culture that works hard to distance itself from any pain and any trouble. This is not a movie illustration, but it is an illustration about watching movies. When I was a kid and we were watching a movie, and I had three sisters, so we watched sentimental movies, I'll just say that. And it got to that part where it was really emotionally powerful. I would often try to crack a joke or sigh really loud, anything so that I wouldn't have to deal with the emotional pain, perhaps, or the energy of that movie. Our, our culture is like that. We want to rid ourselves of pain, not embrace it. Ours is a culture that thrives, that lives, that advertises for increased pleasure, increased prosperity, heightened enjoyment, blissful happiness. Even if it's only pretend happiness, that's still the goal. How strange then to hear Christ himself say, happy, blessed are those who mourn. Even perhaps more powerfully is the parallel account in Luke, where the Beatitudes are recorded from his perspective. And Luke shares them in forms of blessings and curses. And here's how Luke records Christ saying in Luke chapter 6, verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. 
And then four verses later, he says, Woe to you who weep or who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you who laugh? Our culture tells us again and again, don't put up with endless scrubbing. Just use our spray and save yourself the trouble, right? And speaking of trouble, don't, don't dwell too much on your troubled past. After all, I'm okay, and you're okay. Don't worry. Be happy. And the world's advice, when you are feeling down, because it does happen occasionally, right? Well, when you're feeling down or discouraged or sad, well, simply remember your favorite things. And then you won't feel so bad. These, these are the messages of the world. And the church, in large part, has bought them hook, line, and sinker. By the hundreds of thousands, we follow those with, with a perfect smile or perfect teeth or what I find really annoying, perfect hair. And they preach about, this is, this is your time. You can have your best life now. Really? I'm hoping that heaven will be so much better. It can be all yours. Just name it and claim it. Just smile your fears away. Just turn your frown upside down. Just reframe your sadness. In the midst of all that noise, Jesus speaks a very different word. He says, blessed are those. Blessed are you. You who weep. For you will be comforted. Well, what does he mean? The meaning of this beatitude is spiritual in nature. It's not just talking about weeping over tragedy in our life. He's talking about weeping over the sin in our life. In the same way that that first beatitude, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He's, Jesus isn't saying you're blessed when you're broke or in debt. It's a spiritual bankruptcy that he speaks to. And once you have recognized your spiritual bankruptcy, only then can you truly begin to mourn over the sin in your life. Jesus is telling those who would listen that only those who mourn about the sin in our lives can really be happy. I think it's safe to say that this is a topic which is lacking in churches today. Happily, I can say not here, where you have a call to confession each week. Not only do you have a call to confession, but most Sundays the call to confession is explained. Why is it explained? Because ours is a culture that doesn't want to deal with the sin in our lives safe to say that we are less interested in and or less aware of the sin in our lives than those believers in the early century, than those in the Reformation. And that may very well be the reason why the church today is by and large ineffective. It may be because of our refusal and our aversion to deal with the sin in our own life personally and corporately. The reason why it's so important that we deal, of 
effectively with our sin is because without a right understanding of your sin, you have a defective view of Christian joy. What exactly did Jesus save you from? If you ignore the stain and the just consequences of the sin in your life. Don't you see that without a proper understanding of sin, you can't have a proper understanding of the gospel? of Christ's forgiveness. You can't have a proper understanding of Christian joy. But individuals and churches today want joy without addressing sin. And so many pastors in the evangelical church in America and perhaps around the world, and many services have completely eliminated this confession entirely. And I wonder if we have eliminated in our own personal devotions, in our own private time, or our family devotions. Help us to be happy, pastor. Give us joy. Or, or how about just tools for success? That's what we want. But our text tells us that those who desire to be truly happy To be blessed must first mourn. So I think it's vital then that we try to understand exactly what this mourning should mean. To do that, there's no better place than to look at the life of our Lord and Savior, the creator of the worlds, the author of these words, the one into whose image we are being made. When you look at Jesus, one of the things that you will never see recorded anywhere in Scripture is that he laughed. Now, I know the danger of making an argument from silence, and it's pretty important that you hear what I say and not just choose to hear what you think I'm saying. A word search on the various Greek words that mean laughter associated with Jesus will give you six results. Three times Jesus is being laughed at. That we've seen. Twice in Luke, we are told that laughter will be turned into weeping. And once, we've read, is the woe about laughter. Now listen carefully. I'm not making the point that Jesus never laughed. It's not what I'm saying. And I'm certainly not saying that there's anything wrong with laughter although it might be, and it certainly is my favorite defense mechanism. But what I am saying is that the disciples didn't follow Jesus because of his plastic smile and because he was really funny. At least what we know is they didn't think it was important enough to include any of the disciples or any of the church uh, New Testament authors. A number recorded Jesus laughing. It doesn't seem to be a central aspect of his life. But when you look at what they did record, they recorded that Jesus was a man of sorrows, that Jesus was acquainted with grief. They noticed Jesus weeping at the death of Lazarus. Jesus, who was about ready to raise Lazarus, wept at his death because he was a man of sorrow. Acquainted with grief. 
They notice Jesus mourning over the fate of Jerusalem. They notice that he went into the garden at Gethsemane and wept. Wept so strongly that he wept tears of blood. They noticed he went away for times of prayer. They didn't note the things that he did to keep himself amused or distracted or entertained. Compare that image of Jesus with the world. Or compare it with people that you consider successful. Those that you are trying to be like. Where and how do you find happiness? Is it on the other side of your grief? We can also look to Paul. Paul understood that his was a life to live as an example to fellow believers. If you say, well, Jesus is too much, I can't possibly be like him, maybe Paul. Of course, good luck, right? But Paul led himself and led his life as an example for others. Are you like Paul who cries out in Romans chapter 7, verse 24? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right there, Paul gives us a picture of what it means to mourn about the sin in our life. And every Christian is to be like that, to confess that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Or as Paul says elsewhere, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Consider the charge from James Chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner. Purge and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Strong, strong words, strong charge. How then can we cultivate that spirit of sober-minded awareness that characterized the disciples? How can we get a heavy heart for the sin in our lives that characterized those before us? Well, for centuries, Christians pause during the day or more frequently at the end of the day, and they literally took an inventory, if you will, of their sins. They would ask themselves, why did I lose my temper? Not just what did I do wrong, but why? Why did I lose my temper? What's behind that? Why did I feel the need to engage in gossip just then? Why did I share that particular story? with that person. What is that saying about my heart? Paul describes himself as the chief of sinners. And for the longest time, I kind of thought, well, I didn't know what to think of that passage. Paul, chief of sinners? Yeah, right. Is it just some sort of a spiritual platitude? Is he just tossing that out there? I have this funny feeling that if Paul and I had a list of like all of our sins, his wouldn't be longer than mine. But then again, his might be longer than mine because I think he can see more deeply into his sins. 
then I can. And that's what we're being called to do here. We do not engage in this practice of asking the Lord to search out our hearts and test our minds, David says, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead us in the way everlasting. If we don't ask for that kind of introspection and examination, how can we possibly mourn over the sin in our life? And if you find this uncomfortable, if you think that this is ridiculous, if you think it's perhaps a bit too morbid, then I want to just challenge you that you might just be admitting that uh, you're not spiritual, that you don't actually want to be like Paul or like Christ. We must mourn over the sin in our life. It's a sin that's waging a war in our members. And not just mourn over the sin in our own lives, but begin to learn to mourn over the sin and the effects of sin in the lives of our neighbors, our family members, our city, our school. And that's why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He could see the people of that city boldly moving towards their own destruction. How would he weep over our cities today? We who pursue our own selfish and destructive desires and entertainments, moving forward with bright smiles and bolstered self-esteems to our own destructions. Jesus says, blessed, blessed are you when you mourn. You can almost hear Paul mourning when he writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 11. Paul writes this. For even if I made you grieve in my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were regrieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Godly grief. But Christ doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us in our grief, even if it's godly grief. There's a reason behind why Christ tells us we are blessed when we mourn. Christ says, because then, and by implication, only then, will we be comforted. How are we comforted? Well, Paul mentions it briefly in this passage we just read. He writes, though for a little while, only for a moment will the pain and the sorrow and the weight of our sin weigh us down when we confess it. As we become convicted of our sins, as we confess our sins 
we are again and again freed from the weight and the pain and the sting of that sin. There's a sense in which to the degree that we dare to look at our sin, to that same degree we will experience Christian joy, the glory of true forgiveness, the the lifting of the weight that is bared down on us, the glory of the gospel. If you If you've been to an art museum, you'll notice that there's typically three categories of people there. If you haven't been, you should go. And you'll notice there are children, there are adults, and there are artists. And they all look at the same paintings. And the children say stuff like, wow, that's really colorful. That's pretty. That's beautiful. I like that. I see something. And the adults look at that and they think, whatever adult thoughts are, I don't, I'm not in that category either. But they look at it and it's a little bit more sophistication. That probably took a while. This is good art, not modern art. My standard for art is if I can do it, it's probably not art. That's the way I look at it. But I look at a painting and I say, wow, that, that probably took a lot of time. Or... I'm surprised that those colors work that well together, and they do. Or I notice that this is being highlighted. The attention is drawn here. An artist will look at a painting and really begin to understand that painting. If it's an oil, uh, how complicated it was to build up the, the texture. If it's a watercolor, understanding the difference between the fact that, that you have to start, maybe in oils, you can start with your darks and put lighter oil on top, but in watercolor, you have to think backwards. An artist understands that. It's the same picture. It's three completely different experiences because they have the ability to look more deeply. The same is the case with the gospel. You do the hard work, the painful work of taking a look and honestly looking at your own life. Those of us who have truly felt the sorrow of our sins can feel the joy of forgiveness. Lord, you're forgiving me for that? The thing that I can't tell anyone? You've forgiven me? The joy of reconciliation. The greater your understanding of this sorrow, the greater your sense of joy and comfort. This is not only true at your conversion, but this can be true every day in the life of the believer. It is only after Paul cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, that he can rejoice at the answer, thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Every day, our confession can be followed by the comfort of an assurance of forgiveness, an assurance of your salvation, and the joy of experiencing a reconciliation in our relationship. It's not that God would ever leave you. In fact, he promises quite the opposite. But unconfessed sin can still function as a barrier in your experience of that relationship. 
My wife reminded me that David illustrates this perfectly in the 51st Psalm. It is only after his confession that he calls out in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. But our comfort is more than a relieved and restored conscience. It's more than just a revitalized understanding of a relationship with God here on earth. Those who have truly learned to weep, Jesus explains it like this in John 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered her baby, She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The pain and the sorrow in this world, which you can actually trace, and is caused only and solely by the effects of sin, from Adam down to us, will be wiped away by Christ. In the same way that the smile or the face of a newborn melts your heart, Christ has promised to melt your heart again and again and again. And our tears will be wiped away with finality, when we see Jesus. This isn't a calling to be better. This isn't a calling to come up with some system. This is a calling to look again at the grace of the gospel. To ask ourselves, what other hope is there in the rest of the world? What other hope is there in the rest of the world? We can't hope in mankind you hadn't noticed, we are not evolving into a kindler and gentler species. We can't hope it in government, either candidate, right? We can't hope in banking. We would be silly to even hope in our own retirement portfolios for lasting comfort and joy. Only in Jesus can you truly be comforted. And then only after your heart has been genuinely broken by the sin in our life. It's only once we confess our sins, once we acknowledge our misery and the damage that we have caused, that Jesus will fully forgive us. We can begin to rejoice and to understand rather in fullness the forgiveness that he has given us. There's an irony here. It's the same way, in the same way that only a believer can weep and grieve at the death of a loved one. A believer can weep full and rich and sorrowful tears and yet do so not without hope, the scriptures teach us. So too, here, the believer can experience sorrow and mourning over the sin in their own life and yet be simultaneously happy because they're understanding Christian joy. Christ has truly forgiven you for that despicable thing in your life. 
and for the damage you've caused in others' life. Who else? Who else can love you like that? Forget, forget your plastic smiles. Forget the idea that you may have picked up from somewhere along the way that as a Christian you have to pretend to be happy. But somehow you can never let them see you down. Look to Jesus and see rather that he could weep at the sin in the lives of those around him. Look to Paul who could see and weep at the sin in his own life. Weep daily at the sin in your life. Mourn at the effects of the sins in your lives of your, the neighbors in your city and the school and our nation and around the world. For only then can we daily experience the joy of our salvation, the glory of God's grace and forgiveness. Only then will these words become true. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is, as you have declared, living and active. Lord, you pierce us and divide between bone and marrow. And so, Lord, if we have never gotten into the practice of really asking you honestly to examine our hearts and to search us and to see if there be any wicked way in us, Lord, we ask that you would be gentle with us as we begin to try to faithfully follow you. But Father, as we do, as we notice the sin in our own life, would you immediately remind us that you have taken that? You've taken that. And you have nailed that certificate of debt on the cross. And you have washed us whiter than snow with your own blood. Who loves like that? Father, give us joy. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.